Thank you, Ashley and worship team. It's good to be reminded of the beauty of Christ and how he indeed calls for our entire lives to be surrendered to him. Today we're continuing in our teaching series called Together out of Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, please turn. We'll be reading on Ephesians 4 in a few minutes. In this teaching series called Together that we began last week, we learned we learned the theme of the book of Ephesians is that the gospel itself, that the gospel creates unity. And so that is the theme of Ephesians chapters 1 through 6, is that the gospel creates unity. Unity where we are united with God, and then because of that union, that fellowship, we then inherit brothers and sisters where we share the same father and then we have unity with other believers. And so to follow Jesus is to do so in community. No one follows Jesus alone. So the call to follow me is one that is a call to have a faith family. And so as we continue to learn about relationships and having healthy, satisfying, reconciled, gospel-centered relationships that requires being gospel-centered, and good relationships, in, in my opinion, is a lot like good health. You don't realize how valuable good health is until you've lost it. And it's the same thing with friendships. Sometimes we don't realize what a blessing they are until, indeed, we've lost them. So it's important for us to maintain healthy relationships. And we began this series last week by talking about unity in a call to unity out of Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Today we'll pick up with Ephesians still, chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, as we work through the chapter 4 of Ephesians in this series. And if you're taking notes, the main idea of this text in Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, the main idea in that text is that as God's people, we must maintain unity within our diversity. So the main idea is that as God's people, we must maintain unity within our diversity. And so that is the calling that we're all individuals, and yet we're called to be one. And so there are two primary truths in this text, and let's begin by reading verse 7 as we find the first one. So Ephesians 4 verse 7 tells us that, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I'll read it again. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the first truth is that we have diversity in our gifting. So truth number one is we have diversity in our gifting. And so in the first six verses, the first paragraph in Ephesians 4, we learn about unity and how it's the gospel itself and God's character as a triune God, as a trinity, that is a foundation for our unity. That's the first paragraph. We looked at that last week. Well, now we're looking, as we continue in this chapter, on how, yes, we are called to be united, and we have our hearts knit together by God's Spirit, the same mission of making disciples based on the gospel, and yet we are all individuals and we're all unique. And you see that in verse 7, it begins with the word, but. Whenever a sentence begins with the word but, that's very important. It's a transition. It's a comparison. So the first six verses, we must have unity on God's character based upon that in the gospel. But 
we are unique individuals. It says what? It says, but what in verse 7? Each one of us individually has been given a measure of Christ's gift. So we see grace and we see gifting. And each one of us has that individually. Verses 8 through 10, it continues. It says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended, the, the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Here in verse 8, as he's describing this unique gifting that all of us have, he quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. Now, in that psalm, what you have is a depiction. It shows God as a conquering king who has the enemy that has been defeated, that he's riding in in victory, and the enemy is chained. They're, they're, they're captives. Now, to understand this, just for a second, I want you to do your best to picture yourself as an ancient Near Easterner. When Sansi was written, it was around 1,000 B.C., and so you have 3,000 years ago from now, living in the same Arabian Peninsula. Imagine you live in a village, and there's been enemies that have been raiding your village, and they've burned your crops, and you're afraid to let your children go play outside. Because your neighbor's child was, was taken as a slave just last week. And you live in fear. And there's this evil enemy that is continually attacking and burning and pillaging and raping. And it's horrible. And you live in fear of this enemy in your village. And then you hear that, that the king, your beloved king, has gone out into battle and is attacking the enemy. And then he has defeated the enemy, and so you, you go to the capital, and you see the king, the victorious king with his troops coming into town, and everyone is celebrating and dancing, and there in the line at the end of the procession, you see the very enemy that you were so afraid of that caused you to live in terror and live in fear, and you see that enemy in chains following your victorious king. Can you imagine the relief that you would feel? Can you imagine the joy of seeing your enemy that caused you to have fear and anxiety and terror captured in chains? And, and what happens here is Paul is applying that text to Jesus of Nazareth and saying Jesus is our conquering king. He has defeated the enemy, that which would keep you in fear. What is it that you're most afraid of? We all have things that we fear, things that cause us to be anxious. Uh, the future, the unknown, relationships, you name it, health, things, or the enemy himself that would attack us and would grip our hearts, and we would be cause of fear, and we see that Jesus has indeed defeated the enemy, and we need not fear him the enemy anymore. You don't have to live in fear. You can trust Jesus who has conquered the enemy. And you can stare down the enemy that is chained. And you can say, I have victory because Christ died on the cross in my place and is resurrected. And I have his spirit. And I have victory over you, O enemy. 
And then Jesus, not only is he victorious, and does he conquer that which would grip us with fear, but then he gives gifts. He brings back the booty. He's gone and he's, he's conquered and he brings back. And he then gives gifts freely to his people and saying, here, take the spoils of victory. And he's equating this spiritually to now that Jesus has conquered sin and death on the cross and he gives us spiritual gifts, which is why you see here in verses 9 and 10 in parentheses, he's describing, he's explaining the psalmist saying, Jesus who descended, he came from heaven, died on the cross, and then he ascended, went back up to the Father, the victorious king, and he's going to come back one day, come back in full glory, and the, the enemy that is already defeated, who's on borrowed time, will be thrown into the lake of fire. And you and I will stand around the throne of God wearing white robes, showing the purity that we're going to finally have one day. We're going to worship Christ together, every tribe and nation and tongue that we have just a mere glimpse of in our church every Friday morning. And so we are of good hope. We're not discouraged. We know how it ends. And in the meantime, as you go about living this life in this thing called community, following Christ together, we're all so unique and we have different backgrounds. And he's given these gifts. Why? It says that he may fill all things. That he wants to fill the earth with his glory. And we have the privilege of being those image bearers we talked about last week. That we get to reflect God's glory in Abu Dhabi and all around the world. And so he has saved us freed us, we have peace, and then we're empowered through his spirit, and then we are given these gifts to go and expand the borders of his kingdom, to go make disciples and see other people be part of his kingdom, to call Jesus king. And we get to do this together. And so your life has immense value because you belong to Christ, and you're part of the story that he is telling of redemption. And he gives gifts, he says, for us to accomplish his purposes. In verse 11, he describes what these gifts are. Verse 11 says, and he gave what? Apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. All right, there's a lot to be said here, but we don't have all afternoon to go into all of these in profound detail, but we do want to look at these, okay? There's four specific ones that he mentions here. Let's look at these gifts. The first one, he says, are the apostles. And so what does the word apostle mean? Well, it means messenger. That's what the word itself means. Now, if you read in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 and through 2, the apostle Paul is actually defending his apostleship. And in so doing, he defines what an apostle is. And he says an apostle is someone that has been with Jesus specifically and has personally, by Christ, been sent out to go and proclaim the gospel, to go and be a messenger. And so was with Jesus, sent out personally by Jesus, and has been given incredible supernatural abilities to heal and so forth, and also were the authors of Scripture. And so every single book in the New Testament has what we refer to as apostolic authority. What that means is every single New Testament book was written by an apostle or by a close associate that was approved of by an apostle. And so what we have is these initial people that God saved, that Jesus sent out, who did miracles, proclaimed the gospel, planted churches, wrote scripture, and had authority in the early church. 
So that's what an apostle, by definition, is. Now, the next one where it says the prophets. Now, let's define what that is. Well, what's a prophet? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, a prophet was someone who spoke for God, quite simply. A mouthpiece for God who was revealing God's will and revealing God's words to his people. So he spoke for God, but he did more than that. He specifically called God's people to repent and to turn back to God with pure hearts and to delight in God more than other things. And so he was a prophet was someone that was speaking for God, calling for repentance, and in most cases would even prophesy, would even foretell the future. And in these situations, he was pointing to the Messiah, pointing to Jesus. And so that's what a prophet did, call for repentance, preaching God's word as they were pointing to the coming Messiah. Now in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the, the prologue of the book of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So it says, God spoke by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so, yes, God spoke to the prophets appointed to Jesus. But now, Jesus is the complete and final revelation of who God is. Who is God? What is God like? Look to Jesus. He is a complete revelation. It says later that he is the imprint. He is the exact representation of who God is. He is God, part of the Trinity. And so Jesus is a complete and final revelation. And so what we have now is you would say a closed revelation in the sense that what we have in the Bible is all that we need to know. What God's given to us, revealed through the apostles, through the prophets of old, and finally and completely through the person of Jesus Christ. And so, if you're looking at the office of apostle and the office of prophet, those no longer exist today in that sense, because those were two unique offices in that era, in that time of redemptive history that God was using to bring us a final revelation. And so, the office of apostle or the office of prophet don't exist today. But let me clarify a couple of things, because I'm quite aware and our church is very diverse. People have different backgrounds and different traditions and different thoughts on this. And so let me clarify one thing here up front, that when I say that there is no more office of, of apostle or a prophet, I am not denying the work of God's Spirit. God's Spirit today is active, and He leads us. And the Spirit of God indeed is the one that working inside of us convicts us and, and gives us wisdom. And so I'm not denying the work of God's Spirit in the life of a believer. What I'm describing is any kind of extra revelation beyond what's already given in the Scriptures. Another point of clarification when describing this issue is that when talking about prophecy, there are people that refer to the gift of prophecy, and they don't mean someone that can foretell the future. What they're referring to is someone that proclaims the Word, someone that preaches the Word. And so remember, a prophet... A major role was to preach the word, to speak for God. And so people talk about having the gift of prophecy, and what they mean by that term is someone that boldly proclaims the word, that is anointed by God and has the gift almost of teaching, if you will. But specifically, not just teaching, but a call for repentance and a turning back to God. And so if you believe in prophecy and that's what you mean, then I agree with you, absolutely. God still calls prophets today 
who boldly proclaimed the gospel, but do I believe that he caused people to give extra revelation beyond what's revealed in the Bible, then we would say no. So it depends on how you're defining the gift of prophecy. But many more things could be said about this topic, but that's all we talked about all morning, and we were going to talk about our diversity and our unity. But one thing that I will encourage you is, if you have a different perspective on, on these issues, and I would encourage you to come talk to me or another elder, and the bottom line is with any kind of issue like this that in a diverse context like ours, is remember that we didn't have unity, and again, within our diversity, and we didn't have grace and charity with those that may have different perspectives. Um, but this is where we are coming from. The next gift, and so you have apostles and prophets, which were, again, for that era in rhythm history, the next one is evangelists, and so the evangelist is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and so people that God's Spirit equips and gives gifts to, to go and to boldly proclaim the gospel. Now, everyone is called to the work of the evangelists. We're all called to make disciples, but some people have, have an anointing, or in this case, even the office of evangelist. And then you have the last one that says, pastor, teacher. Now, in some translations, it says pastors and teachers. And so you're thinking, well, why is he joining those? Because in the original language, it's actually one word. It's hyphenated, pastor, hyphen, teacher. But it's, it's the same office. It's, it's that of someone in a local church that has the privilege of having leadership where they're, they're teaching and they're caring for the flock. And so this is, this is perceived here in the scriptures, is revealed as being a gift for the local church. But see, here's the thing. This is not the only list of gifts in the New Testament. There's actually others as well. Like earlier, Patrick read to us out of Romans chapter 12. And when we were one of those lists where it describes other giftings for all people. It also, if, if you look in 1 Peter chapter 4, and also if you look in 1 Corinthians 12, there's other lists. And there's many other gifts such as discernment, and wisdom, and exhortation, and service, and mercy, administration, leadership, teaching, the list goes on. God has given his people a diversity of giftings, and so we're all different, but we all play our same role uniquely, but we're all playing our role, and all of us then together as one body can accomplish together what God would have us to do. God delights in us having different personalities and different giftings. He delights in our diversity. Well, how do I know that? Well, look to the Trinity. You have three individual personalities, three people, and yes, they're all together as the Godhead is one Trinity, but they're all unique. And yet what you see within this diversity in the Trinity is complete unity and harmony and no bickering or fighting. Like we talked about last week, no, no measuring for different positions, but just in complete harmony within the Trinity. And so that's what we must mirror in the body of Christ is within our diversity to have unity. Look, we're all different. We all have very different gifts and personalities. We all serve different roles within the faith family. We even have different levels of maturity. We're just different. But we must not forget that God is still sovereign even over those differences. And God chooses in his sovereignty to surround us with people that are different from us, who think different, have different traditions and different expectations and different protocols, even for how to eat a meal. It's just different. 
Well, is that bad? No, it's good that we're different. It's good. It reminds us of the gospel, that God is saving a people for himself from many different backgrounds, from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so God chooses to surround us with different people because it, it promotes his purposes. That's why he does it. It reminds us of the gospel. You see, do we sometimes think, whether subtly or very intentionally, do we ever think that maybe diversity is a hindrance to good relationships? Do we think that the best relationships will only be with people that look like us, sound like us, or think like us? Do we subtly think that diversity is actually a hindrance to God's purposes? When was the last time that someone in church really annoyed you? Now, don't raise your hand or don't yell their name or, or whatever, but it's happened. I know it's happened. I know it. it happens to me. It happens to you. It happens to all of us where someone says something or does something that in your mind and in your culture should not be said or should not be done that way, and it just kind of irks you. It's like, ah, oh, he doesn't get it. Well, he doesn't get it. He's not from your home country. He likely doesn't. He, maybe he's malicious, but hopefully not. Likely in the church, he just didn't know better. And we can very easily, unintentionally offend other people. But is that bad for us? No. It's actually good for you to experience that. Because then you can experience the gospel and give that person grace. Just like God has given you grace. Diversity is not an obstacle. Listen, it's not an obstacle towards having harmony. It's not an obstacle to God's purposes. Diversity is a means, not an obstacle. Diversity is a means to accomplishing God's purposes. It's the vehicle that God uses to accomplish it. But this applies to you personally, not just in the church. It does, of course. But it applies to you in your own marriage, too. I mean, just think. Your husband or your wife are very different from you. I'm pretty sure that if I spend just five minutes with you and you share the differences, there will be a great many areas where both of you have very different personalities, different strengths, different weaknesses, different pet peeves, different frustrations. You have different things that just would just really annoy you about the person that you said I do too many years ago. And here's what we tend to do. We tend to want to remake that person into our image and have them conformed to our image and be like us. We want to control and manipulate and make that person more like us. And what's really difficult is when your spouse has struggles that you don't have. Because I guarantee you it exists. There are things that you, husband, struggle with, and your wife, psh, for her, that's no problem. And then there's things that she struggles with that for you is no problem. And so whenever it's a struggle that I have, oh, I'm very patient with you. No. If you have a struggle that I can relate to, then I'll give you all kinds of grace. But the second that you have a struggle that I can't relate to, I bring down the hammer of, of righteousness, and you better repent and turn from, from your sin and turn back to Jesus, you evil sinner. Well, so are you. You're as much the evil sinner as your spouse is. 
It just so happens on this day you're seeing her struggle. But if you look in the mirror and you remember the gospel, you see that you are a sinner and you have your own struggles. Might be different from him or from her. But God's forgiven you. And so we must forgive and have grace as well. We must delight in our diversity and just let people be. Just let them be who they are and don't try to change them. Just have grace with them. We are indeed a diverse people in our homes and, of course, in our church. But that's what God uses to spur us on to to being more like him. But we also need to have unity. And so, yes, we have diversity in our giftings. We have diversity. But we also must have unity in our mission. So the first truth is we need to have diversity in our gifting, which we do. Second is unity in our mission. Let's read verse 12, Ephesians 4, verse 12. And so he's giving these gifts for what? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so in verse 12, it says that he's given us these gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. So he's given, in this context specifically, people that are gifts that have this office of pastoral leadership that have the goal of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Because every single saint is a believer. You have the Holy Spirit. You're being sanctified. And so he calls you a saint. And, then, and so pastors, their role is to then equip you to then go do what God's called you to do using your gifts. Not to just sit and watch the pastoring ministry. For all of us, every member is a minister. So that's the way this must work. For the work of ministry, all of us must do that. So every single believer is gifted for ministry. So it's for, for the building up of the body. And so we're called to serve according to our giftedness. And so a spiritual gift is, is an ability given by the Holy Spirit that would empower you to help build up the body, to make us a healthier disciple-making faith family. That is your role. And when every one of us is using our gifts according to how God's made you, fulfilling your role, then our church will be healthy and built up and able to accomplish our mission of glorifying God by making and developing disciples. We have great diversity, but within that we must have great unity. And we unite around having a passion for the gospel. But here's what happens in most churches, and it can happen to ours, it can happen very easily, is we each have our own little pet agendas. We have our thoughts of what it should look like or what should be preached or, or what should be sung or how this should work, or what ministries we should or should not have, and everyone has their thoughts of how it should be. And then what happens is we, we get so fixated on our thoughts or our agenda that we lose sight of the agenda. We only have one agenda at ECC Off-Island, and it is to make disciples. That's it. We glorify God by making disciples. That is our singular agenda. And so when we all share that same mission, we all have that same heartbeat, we're going to have unity. But when we all start thinking what we want to do separately, then that's when it begins to unravel, and then unity begins to suffer. And so most churches that you see that are languishing with division and are suffering, somewhere along the line, 
the church lost their vision to proclaim the gospel and to live solely to see the kingdom's borders expand as more people profess faith in Christ. And so I'll ask you this, and it's an important question for you is, where is your ministry? Where are you using your gift to build up ECC off-island? Because we're all called to do that here, to build up the faith and to build up the church as every one of us is doing the work of ministry individually, and then we do it together. And so if you come on a Friday morning and you sit and then you leave, you are missing it. That is not the goal. The goal was not for you to come and sit, but to go and make disciples. And we do that within these four walls, but we are to do that outside of these four walls. So the question is, are you using your God-given gift? Because if you're not, you know what you're doing? You're robbing this church. When you don't use your gifts, you're robbing this church. Of what? Of you. You are a gift to this church. And when you don't serve, you're literally robbing us of your giftedness. So we need you to serve the body according to how God has made you, according to your giftedness. And when we do, what happens? We just read verse 13. It says, we'll all attain unity. We're all going to have this mature manhood like it says, and then verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so he's saying that when we're all maintaining unity around the gospel, what happens is we're going to have maturity. And then verse 14, it says, as opposed to having what? It says, be children, be infants. God wants you to grow up. He doesn't want you to stay an infant. He wants you to be a mature follower of Jesus. And so part of your maturity is influencing others for the gospel. It's serving others in the name of Jesus. It's critical for your growth and for our church's health that you be a part of that. And then verse 15 is important. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. There it is again. Grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Being like Christ, growing up spiritually, maturing, being like Christ. And well, why? Well, because that is God's design for us. And it must be done in community. That's the whole point of Ephesians 4 is that it has to be done in community. And so he says that it happens how? That we share what? Truth in love. Speaking truth in love will grow up into him like Christ. That's the key to your spiritual growth. It's truth in love. When someone shares truth to you, how do you respond? Oftentimes when we hear truth, we, we don't really like it. We get defensive, and we want to turn around and criticize the messenger. When that person loves you, and that's the reason why they've come to you. And so we must speak truth to each other in love. But why do we need to hear truth so regularly in community? Because we forget. Because we get gospel amnesia. We literally forget the truth of the gospel. So what happens is either we unintentionally just kind of forget, get busy with life, and we just forget unintentionally, or we very intentionally suppress it, and we intentionally prevent the truth from sinking in deep into our hearts. 
And so whether it's unintentional, just drifting, or very intentional preventing, either way, we need truth in our lives daily. And so God gives us relationships to do that. We need each other. Sacrifice for each other. And this reminds me of two men that were hiking in northern U.S., close to the Canadian border. And they were having a good time camping and, and hiking, and they, were, they had their meal going in the campfire. And then one of them looks, and he sees a grizzly bear in the distance just running and charging at them. And so they start to panic. And so one of them starts putting his, his tennis shoes on to run out, and the other one actually says, what are you doing? You can't outrun a grizzly bear. And he says, I don't have to run a grizzly bear. I have to outrun you. We could very easily approach other people in that same way on, okay, as long as I come out ahead, I'm not too worried about you. But that is not what the gospel is about, is it? The gospel says that God saved us even though we don't deserve it. We're the ones that sinned. And as we saw last week, he has called us to himself. And he sent his son to die in your place. And then when you repent and believe in the gospel, you are given an instant faith family. And relationships are a significant part of how we grow and become who God wants us to be. When I think of relationships, you know what I think about sometimes? This is a confession. I think of working out. I think of exercising. Where sometimes, like, I don't really feel like it. Oh, but I know I should exercise. And then you start doing it, and it's okay, it feels good, you're, you're working out. And then you get tired. And then you just, oh, I'm going to just, I'm done. I'm starting to sweat now. I should stop working out. And we just walk away from the elliptical or the, or the bar or the gym. And we just stop because it got hard. And I'm sweaty now, and it's, I'm tired. But the reality is that when you are working out and you hit exhaustion, you have to keep working out harder after you hit exhaustion because that is the best point for physical fitness is when you work out beyond exhaustion. When you quit at the first point of being tired, your working out is kind of worthless. You have to keep pushing harder even after you feel exhausted. And that's what it's like in relationships. Some of you here are exhausted. I know. Some of you here relationally are just, you're just tired. And you want to give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. It's bigger than you. Your marriage, that relationship, your sibling, your parent, whoever it is whatever that relationship is, that you just feel exhausted and you just want to walk away, don't give up. It's not about you. It's about the gospel. Your relationship is about the gospel. Your marriage is designed to be a mirror that reflects the love that Christ has for the church. It mirrors the gospel. And I can assure you that if you will draw closer to Christ, and if you need help, that you get the help that you need to work through it. And we'll talk the next two weeks on many more hands-on, applicational ways of, of communicating and of just working through difficult relationships in the last two weeks in the series. But I'm telling you, don't give up. It is 
worth it to love people that are different from you, even when it's hard, it reflects the beauty of Christ hung on the cross for you. And for me, relationships are worth it. Even if they're exhausting, they are worth it. You see, relationships, God has designed to be like a diagnosis and a cure. Talking about an illness, I'm talking about spiritual unhealth. Relationships are the diagnosis and they're also the cure. Because in relationships, what God does through godly friends, he reveals areas in our hearts that aren't right. Because we all have blind spots. And then people that love you, that are close to you, that can speak truth to you in love, through that, God reveals to you areas of unhealth. Well, that's a diagnosis. And then through these relationships, we have this new awareness and this new resolve and the encouragement by that relationship that we can then go and pursue repentance and to turn back to Christ. And so then you have the cure. And relationships do both. You need it. I need it. Read the last verse and we'll wrap it up. Verse 16. It says, From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love. So we see here again, each individual part, each individual joint, all of us are individuals, personality, giftings, raw, unique, different backgrounds, but we're all working properly. When we're all doing our role, loving each other, surrounding ourselves around the fact that we all have a passion for Christ, that makes the body grow. It keeps us healthy and expanding and reaching more people for Christ. And we're built up together in love. So this is what God has revealed. And over and over in this passage, Paul is describing biblical community, that we need to have it for us to grow spiritually. People that are different from us. It's good because you know what it does? It pushes me to die to myself. To love people that are different from me pushes me to die to myself. It's good for me spiritually and it's good for you as well. Biblical community. That's what we're after at ECC Off Island. Unity within our diversity. So what is your attitude towards people that are different from you? I mean, I'm serious. I really mean it. What is your attitude for people that are really different from you, that think different? Do you delight in that diversity? And what is the quality of your relationships? You see, when talking about community, it's not icing on the cake. It is the cake of the Christian life. It's not just the icing. It is what it means to follow Christ. We do it in community. Have you ever heard someone say, you made your own bed, now you lie in it. Anyone heard that? Anyone? No? Just me? All right. Well, maybe it's a very American phrase, but in the U.S. it's a very common phrase. And so, again, the phrase is, you made your own bed, now you lie in it. Okay, if you hear that phrase, you know what the person is actually, the, the mentality behind that phrase is what's actually being said. It says, your problems are irreversible. You are stuck in your own mess, the mess that you made. And so you figure it out and expect help from no one else, much less from me, because you made your mess. I'm not going to help you. And so if anything's going to change in your life, you better figure it out. You made your bed. Now you go lay in it. 
Now, maybe you don't use that idiom. Maybe that's too American for some of us. But the attitude, I'm sure, exists in every culture. Uh, you made your own mess. Now, you clean it up. That is the farthest thing from the gospel. The gospel is not you made your own bed, now you lie in it. The gospel is you made your own mess, and so I, the glorious king of the universe, will come down, humble himself, become a human being, die in your place, be resurrected, and offer you forgiveness that you can't earn, that you don't deserve. And so God cleans up our mess, and he pays the price to do it. That is the gospel. And that is what we must reflect with each other as we maintain unity in our diversity. And this learning, we have the privilege of partaking of communion, of the Lord's table. And we do it together. We do it as a faith family. And it reminds us of the gospel, that we've been redeemed for a purpose, to reflect his glory in community. And so before I pray, I want to call the worship team and also the men to the Super Delamont to come to the front. And in these moments, as they take their places and as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, I just want to challenge you to take a few moments and just reflect on, first of all, your relationship with your Father in heaven and, and the quality of that relationship, but also to reflect on the quality of your human relationships and your attitude towards those that are different and that you would reflect as well on you're serving and your view towards using your gifts to serve others. And have, have maybe you've lost that zeal to go and tell others about Jesus. And have we had our hearts consumed by maybe other things. And if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, you have never responded to the good news of Jesus, where you have repented of your sins and turned to him, you can do so today. You have to ask him to forgive you. Ask Jesus to be your master. Turn away from your sin. Put your complete trust in Jesus, and he will save you. It will change everything. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us this beautiful morning. I pray that you would be in the hearts of those that are right now grappling with your truth. I thank you for giving us the privilege of being your people. For indeed, we are a people. We're not individuals. We are your people. And we are humbled and we are thankful that this morning we can partake of your table as we remember what your son did for us. And we thank you. Pray you would help us to be a people that reflect your glory and that we would do so in community. Thank you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.